SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. And welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and we're continuing our voyage along the Psycho films with Psycho for the Beginning. This was a movie on Showtime from uh, 1990. Uh, with me is Thrasher. And you'll probably have to make wee-wee, and you'll squat over this. That's all that thing of yours is good for, making wee-wee. And Alex. At which point I realized I had a... Gotten too big for my britches. Sounds a little bit like Nixon. The Bernard Herman score goes, hoo ha, hoo ha. You could, yeah, you could pitch shift it, you know, and get all that stuff working. I bet that's, that's really something. But yeah, Psycho for the beginning, you know, I mean, the big thing with the promotion of this, indeed, this helped get Olivia Hussey and some good names signed up was it's written by Joseph Stefano, who wrote the screenplay to the original Psycho. And this pretends the Psycho 2 and 3 didn't really uh, exist. Or if or they could have existed, it just doesn't really refer to them. Well, there, there are some small, there's like several small and one big sort of continuity issues if we're taking this with the other film. The, the main one being, in this version, in this in this movie... Norman Bates is Norma Bates' biological child, not the biological child of her sister, as was revealed in Psycho 2 and was an even bigger plot point in Psycho 3. And if we're taking um, the previous two films into consideration, it really underlines how bad the penal system is. <laughs> that sure. we got Norman uh, back out and, you know, just living a casual life. Him and the Joker, man. Yeah, those guys have best lawyers in the world. Although it's, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Anthony Perkins, I, I was telling some guys this offline, but unfortunately he got a uh, HIV diagnosis um, while filming this, and he passed in 92. Uh, he did some more, like, TV movies and a few things here and there, so he kept on working and, and everything, but the, unfortunately the medication um, and treatment for that wasn't as, as good as it is now. Uh, yeah, it was one of the. He was one of the first actors I mm -hmm. was aware of having yeah. um, HIV when I was a kid. I, you know, barely knew what it was. Um, I remember being like, "Oh no, Anthony Perkins!" Like, mm -hmm. it's Bummer. it's it's just it's it's just a, one of another tragedy just coming out of that disease. Like, if if there was if there was any justice in the world, he would be playing a creepy senator in a Marvel movie today. Totally. Or something. I mean, because he was only sixty years old, and he, uh, yeah, I mean, he always kept himself in in shape and everything. And he, his something about his eyebrows in this struck me as looking a bit strange. I don't know, but mm. maybe well, they're maybe old man eyebrows. They're, they're, yeah, old man kind of 
hairy, twitchy eyebrows. But in this movie has a lot of close-ups. And one thing that struck me as a bit strange is it has a lot of scenes where people are looking directly at the camera. Mm, yeah, definitely. I thought that was interesting. And um, funny thing, too, with um, Anthony Perkins was that, you know, Psycho 3 didn't do so hot in the theaters. And, uh, you know, naturally he was very close to the Norman Bates character. So he really, really wanted to direct this film. And then it goes from, hey, uh, Anthony Perkins, renowned actor, whose directing career is kind of getting a little momentum despite the failure of three. And it's like, hey, Norm, <laughs> Anthony Perkins, you're going to revise the, uh, Norman Bates, uh, the Norman Bates character. And it's going to be directed by the guy who did Critters 2. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's um, just just one of those things. You know, he did some, Mick Garris did some TV movies. He, he directed this thing called... Uh, why is this not on? He directed some like made-for-TV movie for Disney about like a, a friend with a or a kid that has an imaginary monster as a friend. Um, you know that old chestnut. He did. He was a story editor for Spielberg's um, kind of knockoff on Twilight Zone, The Amazing Stories, which is getting a new version on Apple TV. Or, oh, cool. I think maybe that aired already some of it. Um, so you know he had some experience as a writer, wanted to do some directing and. And to do a psycho movie with Anthony Perkins, I mean, as as someone who was a big fan of the horror genre and later would do a whole bunch of those Stephen King miniseries like The Stand and so forth, and then The, and the Shining with Stephen Weber, uh, it must have been very exciting for McGarris. Um, I haven't heard the commentary, but I've heard a lot of interviews where Anne McGarris talk about it on his podcast, Postmortem, and he mentions that Anthony Perkins was difficult to to work with because I think, as you said, Alex, he wanted the job in the first place. And he um, was saying, like, oh, what did you think of Psycho 3? Was it camp? I mean, that was something he was very offended about in a lot of the reviews. So uh, I'm going to let a cat outside. So why don't why don't you talk for a second, Thrasher, about... Well, I just want to say, I, I, I actually do... I, I like uh, Mick Garris. I, I, I've greatly enjoyed uh, a, lot of, a lot of his work, some of it the serious and some of it the camp. But I just noticed he is the creator of one of my favorite underappreciated TV series, the she wolf of London, which has a fascinating production history because the first season was an American British co-production. And it has this sort of like BBC wit and it has access to all these great British actors. But then in the really? second season, it becomes an American Canadian co-production and the tone and texture of the show completely changes but it's still very entertaining. It's it's this it's 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 of course it's a horror comedy about a an American woman who travels to Europe, gets bitten by a werewolf, becomes a werewolf, and so she and an anthropologist are always trying to find a cure, but keep getting wrapped up in in weird uh, weird mysteries. And this is one of the nice things about the first season. Not all the mysteries are occult. Some are just regular mysteries, and she happens to be a werewolf. Oh, okay. I keep hearing great things about this show, and I need to check it out. There's a really fun episode that takes place at a at, at a convention for a TV show that is very similar to Star Trek, uh, but not actually nice. Star Trek. And that's one of those where there's no real supernatural element in it. And it's but it's really they they get they get the feeling of those kinds of fan conventions very, very well. Excellent. Excellent. And, and since they decide that there is a look that this not Star Trek show has, that's very much Star Trek like, you get none of those generic costumes you so often see 
in convention scenes and shows. Like everyone is clearly trying to look, everyone is dressing like an off-brand Star Trek character, and that creates this wonderful consistency. That's awesome. It should also, oh, go ahead. Uh, Mick Garris is interesting. I I like the dude. I always love to hear. I always love his insights on horror films and uh, you know movie making and just cinema in general. Uh, whenever he pops up in documentaries or YouTube channels or anything, I'm always excited. He, he always has really great insights. As a director, um, I mean, he does a lot of television. You know, like you said, the the Stephen Weber uh, Shining. You know, he does a lot of these faithful Stephen King adaptations. I have a sleep. I have a soft spot for Sleepwalkers because of the whole cat's exploitation angle. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I, I think it's almost like a Joe Dante thing. Like I like him as just a film commentator as much as I do a director. Sure, he knows a lot about film history. He used to host an interview show on public access TV in Los Angeles, talking to people like Christopher Lee and so forth. I think what survives of that is on YouTube. Uh, there is also a, um, I mean, it should be noted, he created the Showtime series Masters of Horror, which was a uh, anthology series where these great directors got to do a, a bunch of these uh, episodes on a, on a lower budget. Um, and he, he did a movie recently that was also an anthology movie called... Uh, Nightmare Cinema? Uh, Nightmare Cinema, thank you. Yep. So, and they're trying to turn that into a TV show, so we'll see what happens oh, with, cool. with all of that. He loves the anthology stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, Psycho 4, I mean, it's... I have a few minds about this. I've seen this movie a few times. I think, well, it's nice to have Anthony Perkins in it. I don't think his, the wraparound segments, which make up about half the movie, are nearly as interesting as stuff with Norman Bates as a kid. And mm. I, I'm wondering if they did that just to get Anthony Perkins on the box, on the poster. Uh, and I think he, it was probably more convenient, too, because of, you know, conflictions and shooting and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciated the, the talk show wraparound segment, if only because I, I, I found it, it facilitated telling the flashbacks in a non-linear fashion. And I, I really felt that helped. It helped the flashbacks be arranged in a much more dramatic order. The only thing I really right. didn't like about the whole uh, the whole radio talk show angle is that it does just get dropped. Like I feel like this <laughs> movie this movie needed either an epilogue back at the radio station or 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 something. Or yeah. maybe you know they make such a big deal with the the radio host. Uh, Fran Ambrose is played by the great CCH Pounder, who just has yeah. such chili a good... cheese hot dog pounder. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, she just has such such a great voice, and she's smoking the cigarettes. And this movie has so many close ups, you know, to, yeah. to make things more intense. Well, and she's she's very well known in in geek circles for playing Amanda Waller in several animated uh, Justice League and Justice League adjacent mm. shows. And you can already hear she's got that voice. She has this wonderful voice of authority mm. that that really comes through, and I really oh, yeah. appreciated that. She's with her a character. great presence, and we're all the better having her. I think the framing device of the radio show it works in a way too, though, because like after three films, we could, I don't think we could have Norman running around with a wig and a knife again. You know what I mean? Like I just yeah, you know, this is also someone who's been trying to maintain a sanity for so long. I just don't think we could have the you know, we can't have Psycho Killer Norman again because it would just be like, just we're wear, it would wear us out, I think. So it's, um at times it's a little limiting, but I think as a whole, as a narrative construct, it works. 
I'd also like to touch on the score. Uh, Graham Ravel uses the original themes by Bernard Herrmann, but I think he does a really classy job here in making stuff sound like Psycho and bringing back the old themes when he can. Uh, Graham Ravel has done a lot of horror scores, such as Child's Play 2 and Bride of Chucky, and um, it's just all kinds of stuff. You look at his career, he's done quite a lot, so that was a good... uh, catch to get him to do this i mean oh geez look at all these work you know has done dozens of movies oh yeah uh, crow city of angels he did the score to that something we talked about before hey we saw that um, um and it was cool because mick garris is like you know i'm it was like i'm shocked that so many people you know took the psycho mantle and um no one no one really used the great bernard herman score and it was referred to as black and white music um but the film you get here is actually it's very colorful it's um very much and it's it's very it's very much more colorful than I think a lot of the other movies. And I also think that um, in the tradition of the Psycho sequels, one of the big things that's kept all of the films so interesting is that no one's really trying to imitate Hitchcock. Because like, why? Why are you going to do that? Um, so it just kind of goes for a different thing. But actually, like you said, it utilizes the the music quite well. And I, I like how they go very disturbing with their relationship between oh. the, the the mother played by. The great Olivia Hussey, who um, you know I know best from playing Juliet in the Zeffirelli uh, Romeo and Juliet. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. But, but yeah. she's aged quite well, I have to say, and, and just really liked. She always wanted to play the part of like the an evil mother, or evil queen, or something like that. So she really enjoyed playing this part. And this is she, like the she ultimate. Does, <laughs> she does a good job. She heightens the role in a lot of in a lot of great ways. The only thing that didn't quite work for me is she never settles on an accent. Uh, Norma True, Bates yes. seems to shift through about five to seven different accents in, in this movie, <laughs> and it, at, at times it it almost worked the way the way the way a person might affect an accent to make a point or to seem more sophisticated but other times it just seems like these it, f- it seems like the scenes were shot months apart and she just forgot what accent the character was supposed to have oh interesting I she's own... half uh, argentinian but she grew up in london and um the, the british stuff is what i tend to notice more especially as the film goes on I always took it as a what you would call like an international accent, like like the mm. accent like you'd see like George Sanders use in like the fifties movies, like oh, ho, 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 I'm not quite British, I'm not quite German, you know. The continental uh, accent. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly, continental. Thank you. Uh, the one thing that I think is really cool that separates this film is that previously, you know, Psycho came out in 1960 at a time when like Freudian psychology was like basically the end all and most psychological analysis. And here we're kind of dropping, not just dropping that, but, you know, this film incorporates, you know, a lot of of different elements like, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia. Um, It's a much more layered look at the damaging um, presence, uh, not just the damaging presence of of Norma Bates, but also um, a more layered, less uh, Freudian derivative uh, psychological profile, if you will. What well, also t- taps into the pop psychology of the day, like these, th- like like the the people that you see at the beginning of the talk show, the the uh, the murderer, the member of the murder, the murderer's family who sticks up for them, and the psychologist with a book that he's trying to push. Those are three people huh. you would get on so many talk shows of the era, whether it was television or radio. Oh yeah. 
Yep, and uh, there's also, you know, director John Landis has a small part with a few lines as the station manager. I loved that. I love that every time he showed up, we got a little bit more of him, and I was so thrilled when he got to speak. I, I love these little these little cameos. Uh, by I mean, Landis. John Landis has cameoed a lot in a lot of things. Well, in fact, he started his career as uh, doing stunts and doing some small acting stuff here and there. He's actually the, the human, uh, I, I don't want to say slave, maybe like servant in Battle for Planet of the Apes. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, right. As a young man, um, but uh, however, in you know Psycho Four, he mentioned uh, on, on some podcast somewhere that he they filmed in Florida because they had a version of the Psycho House at Universal Studios Florida, and I guess it was cheaper to film there or something. Yeah. And so that the sweat you see in the studio is it's in in all the different scenes of the movie is real because it's that Floridian yeah. uh, thick heat humidity. So I well, guess with the except, oh sorry, you go. Oh well, just just that that so you know we we've said before this is a this is a TV movie, a cable TV movie, and while it's clearly working with the TV movie budget, it is directed with a bit more flourish than you would get out of a TV movie. We've talked mm-hmm. about the head-on shots. There were some mm-hmm. wonderful extreme close-ups. There were some delightful camera moves, and and every time we were in a flashback, and then. Adult Norman is in that flashback. I was wonderfully taken by surprise every time yeah. they did a reveal. But I particularly yeah, love the one where he's at the funeral and they close the casket and Norman's just standing behind the casket. That was great. Agreed. That's yeah, a good that one. Was really good reveal, yeah. And uh, Henry Thomas, you know, famous at that point from the, the boy in E.T., is the young Norman Bates. And he does he does a good job. I mean, but what, what a hard role, right? You have to oh, yeah. imitate uh, an iconic role when the character is younger not only that anthony perkins is in this movie <laughs> so you can't right. quite <laughs> separate it as much as if it was just the, the henry thomas show and he, now, I'm the, sure... now the nice thing though is that you know original norman is there to tutor young norman behind the True. scenes yeah yeah right and yeah. um and i guess get... um go on Oh, I, I guess Henry Thomas did, you know, would have conversation or try to talk to him as much as possible. And just like the notes were basically like, you know, this, that or the other. But if you have an instinct, follow it. You know, he's like, this is, you know, my mm, character, but great. this is it's your character now as well. So, you know, f- find it basically, which I think is really cool and, and really insightful way to go yeah, about it. Yeah, he does. He does like the shyness angle pretty good and the, the kind of mild stuttering at times when he gets nervous. You mentioned the uh-huh. lighting being a theatrical thrasher and and whenever there's a a murder scene or he's thinking about murder you get this uh red light that's kind of shined on his face which i thought was a good touch and there's a really sweet story about anthony perkins was prickly during production but he goes and sees this final screening of the movie and he's going to make garris like almost crying saying like oh wow this is by far the best movie since the original this is so good i'm sorry i was so hard to work with And, and that was a nice sort of uh kind of apology he kind of gave Mick Garris and that, that nobody was really expecting. Yeah, he always seemed like such a class act, uh, mm-hmm. um, Anthony Perkins. Uh, that's that's a really cool story. Um, and I guess the thing, too, is that amongst, aside from, like, the core trio of actors like, uh, like Anthony Perkins and Olivia Hussey and Henry Thomas, a lot of the other cast, I, I guess, are just, like, Florida people. Um, like the neighbor, like Anthony Perkins brought her in. She's like, I think Hitch would love this lady, you know, as like kind of the doting, you know, oh, annoying huh. neighbor characters, yeah, completely yeah. clueless. So yeah, a lot of these <laughs> other uh, players you see are just kind of like Florida people that they just kind of knew or brought in who thought would be uh, good for these roles. 
Oh, and it's nice. It doesn't take you out of the story. Um, Rasher, you haven't talked in a bit. What are some things that kind of jump out at you? I know we always jump around when we talk about movies here, but. Well, I love, like, it. it's strange. I was so nervous going into this because doing an origin story movie this oh, late boy, in the yeah. series is usually death. But I think that, I think the movie, well, one, it's very smart that the movie just does these flashbacks. So you get, you get these, you get pivotal moments but the wonderful thing about these pivotal moments were shown in the flashback is that they're clearly the result of systemic abuse that norman has suffered over his mother's or from his mother so you always get a sense that oh we're just seeing the worst time this happened we're not seeing Mm -hmm. the first time or the last time this happened um and I thought that was that that added some wonderful texture and, and power to the film. Uh, another thing that that jumped out when when Norman or when Norma and this kind of connects to one of the continuity snarls that you know how in the first film it's revealed that the whole reason they have a hotel is that Norma started dating a man and that man kind of pressured her into using the family fortune to build the hotel. But here they've always had the hotel. Um, uh, but anyway, the the man that she's dating who is this kind of like jock man's man who much like in the original psycho, uh, she's waiting on him to get a divorce so that he can marry her. True. Um, they're like, he, cause when he's first introduced, he, he, they really do hit that, that beat hard that he's this jock. That's just kind of invading, invading Norman's life. But then later there's a scene that starts out really touching where he gets a pair of boxing gloves for Norman and seems to really make a good faith effort to bond with Norman and to kind of like spar with him in the boxing gloves, despite the fact that Norman has no interest in boxing. And there's a, so much texture in that scene because the move, the like the, his character won me over. But oh, I like this guy. He is seriously trying to reach out yeah. to a boy who's going to become his stepson. But it then curdles and transitions into abuse. So. I mean, that, that's something that this this movie does a great job with. It, it does a great job showing abusive behavior from both Norma and also from from the man that she's seeing. The, the uh, abusive... It, yeah. Right. Right. I mean, the, the scene that really kind of got me is, is, the, is the biggie in the flashbacks where it's, you know, raining. Uh, the, the mother is getting a bit histor- uh, hysterical and you see and she's like oh i'm cold i'm cold i'm cold here you you have to warm me up oh and you're wearing the wet clothes and she has the son get to his underwear when he's a teenager and there's there's some disturbing psychosexual stuff yeah 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 and get in bed (laughs) and and he gets uh he gets an erection i'm glad they didn't show anything or (laughs) have like silly music playing or something but then she says she like forces boing yeah but (laughs) she she forces like a dress on him, like locks him in a closet and just like starts beating him. Oh, sme- oh. smears the the lipstick. Smears the lipstick on it. Like, oh, you're not Norm. You're Norm. You're a, you're you're a woman. Norma. You're you're yeah. Norma. And you're watching this, and you're like, yeah, no wonder he's fucked up. Um, yeah, and and you get a scene of him in the dress with the lipstick smeared in his face, like trying to look underneath the crack of the door. It's just awful. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that that scene that really hits hard for for a number yeah. of reasons. Yeah, and the thing too is that the other the previous films, you know, the mother was such a myth. You know, you you saw her as a corpse, 
Um, yeah. Maybe some flashback audio flashbacks, you know, of the craggy old voice and everything. So this one, you get the character in full flesh. You know, you get the the, the psychological abuse and the physical abuse, and just um, you know, she goes from this looming shadow to this like larger than life force that's right in front of you, and it's kind of like. Finally, we're getting the final piece of the puzzle, which is so important in telling an origin story or a prequel, rather. And um, Olivia Hussey just brings the ruckus to this role. I mean, it's a challenging role, a lot of difficult, weird shit to do. And um, she does it, and she plays it, like, pretty damn well, despite the fluctuating accents. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's, that's I think, what, what's so amazing about this, is that th- this is a Norma Bates that lives up to my expectations. Like, she is... Oh, yeah just as monstrous and horrible as 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 if not worse than you might have imagined going into mm. it uh just be, because of because of the sympathy they build for young norman and because of just the the depths of the abuse that they show sure another thing that jumped out to me uh i don't know about you thrasher you and i have spent many years uh growing up or living in the south the southern united states have you ever heard of people putting a few drops of vanilla in iced tea because i haven't um you know, no, I haven't. I want to try it. Although that being said, they put way too much vanilla in that iced tea. Like you yes. want oh, one yeah. drop, no more than three, and no more than and like three is only if you fucking love vanilla more than you uh. love lemonade. <laughs> and and also, also vanilla, like it's not like a flavor, you know, syrup. Like it's yeah. I mean, like it's it's, it's a not strain, it, It's an intense, weird flavor that works okay. You're better off getting. It's a lot more expensive, but you're if it's you can bacon, afford the yeah, real. Yeah. The real vanilla extract, oh, yeah. it's almost like $20 for a bottle, but that's much yeah. of a more subtle flavor. Again, you don't want to use too much of that either. But I, I saw that, and I'm like, you know, I heard people, I, I've heard of people put, you know, a drop of vanilla in their Coke, and they, now they sell, you know, like vanilla or cherry vanilla Coke yeah. you can buy at the mm. store. But uh, for iced tea, that struck me as a strange detail, but they need that to set up. He's using a dropper, and he looks, and he eventually yeah. poisons them. And that poisoning scene, it goes on because yeah, mm-hmm. he puts the strict he puts the strychnine in the iced tea that he serves to uh, Norma and and her boyfriend after what is apparently one of many marathon fuck sessions that they insist Norman be in the house for. <sighs> um, and it, and they really take their sweet time with like because like the boyfriend immediately downs a whole glass and then goes to the restroom while Norma. Norma just like plays with the glass, cools herself off with the glass, pours iced tea Ugh. down her blouse. <laughs> it's gonna get all sticky if it has sugar in it. Like, yeah, uh, like it's the yeah. pouring is like, well, that's just that's what a crazy person does. No, no, no person would would do that. Right. But you know, she finally drinks it, and then we get these prolonged deaths. Uh, with, with her, her and her husband's like slowly well, and, and, and vomiting. And of course, the staircase. Slowly. Oh yeah, falling down the mm. staircase, uh, sort of echoing the staircase falling in the uh, in the original film. Yeah, there's um, a lot of. I mean, and that's what watching this, I was like, wait, this was made for TV. This is like the most one of those br- some of the most brutal shit I've seen in the series. But I mean, like we know it was uh, made for uh, pay cable Showtime, so obviously you know you can get away with uh, much more. But for what it is, it really plunges some really twisted psychological depths. And it really, you know, it an- I guess it answers a lot of questions. And you see this, like, dynamic with Norma, with Olivia Hussey. And it's like, you can tell she loves her son and maybe a little too much. And then there's a part where she snaps. And it kind of 
you, yeah. you see that reflected in Norman where he will feel a certain way towards a woman and then it's too much and it snaps and then he snaps, you know, and you kind of see that these people are just kind of like these bungee cords that if you put too much tension on, they're just going to break and then bad shit happens. <laughs> and you have both the scenes with the younger woman, with the woman his own age, a teenager, right, in the beginning and, and an older yeah. woman. I almost thought they were going to push it and make someone be a lot older, like his mother's age, but they but they don't. Right. Um, and I mean, those are pretty intense too. And you get to see him in the dress for for that stuff. And and they also set up in the house that his father had a hole inside the house that he would look through, and because he's watching his, uh, I guess he's checking in on his mother. I don't know, but he sees him have sex. Well, well, he has. Well, he also uh, his father. You also learned that the hole that Norman would use to peek into cabin one was put there by his father as well. Yes. So there's right. clearly some stuff going on with his father, but we never, we never really see the father. We only see yeah, the father after he died from bee stings. Yeah, he was not a class act either, I guess. Um, which, which, hey, credit, credit, credits due. Uh, bee stings. That's a real way adults die. That you never yeah. see in movies. Usually, when they need when they need a dead adult, they just like oh yeah yeah uh, hit by a drunk driver or cancer. Those are your only two options. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, speaking cancer, of which, heart that's attack, the yeah. one. That's the one part of this movie that I absolutely detested when Norman is talking about like after his mother died, and you know he's lingering over her body in in the casket before he swaps it out and weights the casket down with books. Is that you know he says I can only describe the feeling I had as soul cancer. That is such a first draft line. Yeah, <laughs> that one's yeah. not good. Uh, what there? There's a scene where uh, there's a few of these where you know the gimmick is uh, Norman is on the phone back and forth on on the wraparound story for the radio show, and he he gets so mad that he rips an apple in half. Uh, that was originally written to be like he puts a knife and, and jams it in a table. And he thought that was uh, Anthony Perkins thought that was so cliche. They'd have to they would figure out another way on set how to do that. And they do it with the apple. Um, and I don't know if that quite works with the apple, but at least that's something different. I think no, it, I think he did. It's, it's he a did because better... he bites into the apple. As yeah, kind of a, a note at the end. Well, it's better because uh, I think, yeah, he there was kind of supposed to grab a knife or a cleaver or something and dramatically. Hack it, and I guess the thing with um, between Perkins and and Garris was that he wouldn't really like lock horns with them a lot, but he would ask them a lot of like questions in this like non-argumentative debate form to kind of like deduct their way to a conclusion, you know. But I guess this was the one time he's like, no, it's stupid and just like tired. He's like, it's just just tired, like it just doesn't feel right. And the breaking of the apple, I think, works a little bit better because in that moment of anger and frustration, you're not gonna like grab something you're more just gonna glitch out and just you know blah you know well i think i think the tearing of the apple is the perfect choice for that scene uh for a, a number of reasons is it, one of course it is not it's not cliche two you know it does it does take some real effort to rip an apple in half yeah uh, but two it connects to one of the themes of the movie because you know we we, we learn that norman Part of the reason Norman is out is when Norman was institutionalized, presumably after the first film, maybe after the other two, depending on how you view the continuity, <laughs> um, is that is that he fell in love with one of the doctors there, and now they're married. And and, and the whole reason Norman is talking about how, how he's going to kill again, he never wanted to have children, she's pregnant, and he's paranoid that she's going to give birth to, as he says, another monster. 
So the apple ties into that because what do we see when he rips the apple apart? Seeds. We see the mm. beginning mm -hmm. of new life. He is sure. symbolically tearing into his wife's womb because that is now the, the, the source of his anxiety. The fruit of knowledge, the seed of the womb. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely dig that. And yeah, you do see that it's a very visible seed moment. And and you look and, uh, I mean, the, the speech in, uh, Norman has about I don't want to have, make another monster and all these things. I think it's that's some of the best acting here. He's really kind of panicking, uh -huh. and you see a vulnerability you don't normally see in Norman Bates. But but what do you think about towards the end of the film where it wraps up, where he um, says, you know, he's going to kill his wife, and he's going to do it as himself, not his mother, for the first time. And he, he takes her to the old uh, psycho house. Hey there, this is Jeremy Parrish, and if you're a fan of classic video game soundtracks, or if you just love 20-minute rock epics about war-ready armadillos that battle Catholicism, you should listen to Alexander's Ragtime Band. Join the power trio of myself, Elliot Long, and James Eldred each month as we talk about the most pretentious music of all, progressive rock, right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Previously, in Zelda 2, on Chat of the Wild. Until you get to the elevator. Wait, 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 I'm ready. <laughs> I'm on it. I'm like, stay away from me, and you and your little play. <laughs> he just chases you. I'm like, uh, I'm like, no, 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 run, 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 run. I love that. I love that idea. It's like we have this whole grand adventure, we're building ourselves up, and every time we get in the palace, we're like, oh god, oh god, oh god, it's like just running through. <laughs> That's Chat of the Wild Wednesdays on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Yeah, he he asked her to meet her to meet her there. So I guess I guess he still owns that property because nobody. Or then again, maybe just nobody moved in because it's the murder house. But. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love I I love I love him just throwing the gas around and lighting the house on fire. Like I, I just love that that he wants to end this on his on his own terms. But it it does go on and his and his wife is barely a presence in those scenes until the end. And there's a lot of fake outs. Uh like one fake out. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you're entitled to one fake out. Two fake outs, well, if they're good, all right. Three fake outs, hell no. But there's so many <laughs> fake manifestations of his mother and other characters. Yeah. It just, and hallucinations, it just does not, it just does not work. Um, we, yeah, we spend an unnecessary amount of time running around that damn house. And yeah, like you said, too many damn fake outs too, yeah. And presumably his tension with his wife has been resolved, but we don't really see that. We don't see them coming to terms with each other. We don't see this emotional burden getting lifted. They're just embracing walking away from this beautiful matte painting of the burned down psycho house. Right. And we get no sense of the psychological journey they've been on. I guess Norman is just fine with her having, having a, a kid now. <laughs> when really that should be a more intense discussion between the two of them. Uh, because she did, she did betray his his trust, and yet maybe they, maybe he could be a good father. There's there's a lot there's a lot that could happen there dramatically that the movie just glosses over, and then then we get a few too many notes because mm -hmm. the camera pans over to the basement, which was the last place where he saw a manifestation of his mother, and we hear his mother, you know, Norman, let me out of here, Norman, you <laughs> can't lock me away, and then you know the doors the doors on the root cellar just close on their own. Uh, and, and then it cuts to black and then we hear a baby crying and it's just, it's too many notes. Right. I was fine with the doors closing. The baby crying is kind of confusing 
And I, I feel like one of those things needs to be cut. You either cut the voiceover yeah. from the mother, you cut the doors closing, or you cut the baby crying. But it, I would like to point out, you know, the voiceovers you hear of the mother in Norman's head sometimes are voiced by uh, one of the actresses that did it in the original Psycho. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, uh, Alice uh, Herson. Yeah, I think in the original Psycho they use three different voices yeah, or a combination were. thereof. Um, but so it has, so it doesn't really sound like Olivia Hussey, but it's that same kind of screeching thing. So I think that that's a nice thing. And overall, you know, I think Psycho Four kind of works. I I guess I'll give it a sequel. Yes, I think there's enough here that makes it interesting, especially all the stuff with the mother and how disturbing that gets. Also, I mean the. Um, the eroticism and just the weirdness where she's sweating in the chair and has him apply the orange flower perfume to her legs. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. There's, like, there's what are rolling, like, rolls on him. <laughs> well, well, like, if, if, like, if this had been an Emmanuel movie, that would have been great. But instead, it's just disturbing. Yeah. yeah. I felt like, like body heat or something like that. I was like, ooh, Billy. Night on. Further oh, up Billy. the leg, Norman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, pressure. Right. I'll, so... I didn't like the ending. Uh, I, I I didn't like the beginning. That whole bit with like the 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 teeny bopper who he sort of mm, who's trying yeah. to to really come on to him like out of nowhere. I don't know if she's a guest in the hotel or someone who just drove up, but like it's so heightened. I can only assume it's heightened because it's Norman's memory and not literally what happened, which which you could apply to a lot of these scenes. Um, that it's the traumatic memory and not literally the past, though it's certainly based on real trauma. Um, but the middle was so satisfying. I mean, I, I'm, I can't believe I'm saying saying this because this should not work at all. But I'm going to give this a sequel. Yes, I thought this was well worth watching. Uh, it's great to see John Landis on screen. Uh, I wish <laughs> good performances all round in general. And more than that. I would watch a Psycho 5 that continues from this point. Hmm. Well, we'll get to that when we get to pitch a sequel. Uh, Alex? Um, most definitely. Like, uh, I guess to piggyback on Thrasher, what you said. Yeah, there's um, there's a couple uh, clunky parts. Um, I Like you like said, the ending, I, I definitely agree. It's uh, that this movie could have been, like, maybe, like, five minutes shorter. Um, and I think we would have had a more tightly tightly wound package and i think the pickup scene in the beginning well introduces a lot of like good colorful imagery it's the weirdest pickup scene i've ever seen in any movie i think and um but uh but it really gets some momentum going uh, olivia hussey and henry thomas carry so much of uh <laughs> so much of the weight of the film um and they have uh some great demented chemistry and it answers a lot of questions like, you know, if Norman loved his mother so much, how could he poison her? Well, you find out that she is quite possibly a very disturbed and very, very toxic person. Um, so a sequel, yes, it's not perfect, but for a number four prequel with the original star, we're doing pretty, pretty good. Definitely. You know, all I could think when we saw the establishing shot of the hotel with with the Bates house, all I could think is, oh, they tore down all that, all those Tex-Mex renovations from Bates Motel. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So, I guess it's a different um, set. I don't know. <laughs> to do the pitch a sequel, thinking of the way this ends. I might say, okay, so let's, if I was doing Psycho 5, I would do it where 
uh, Norman Bates, you know, has a son, and his son, as his son grows up, uh, the original, you know, his father dies, and the mother decides to keep the Norman Bates stuff sort of a secret. You know, she doesn't take on Bates's uh, last name, and tries to move somewhere else, and you know, tries to bury. But but there's something you know the son the son is a teenager, and manages to find like a little chest in the attic, and finds like the dress of mother and the knife, and he just starts hearing these voices. Some of the as uh, Norman feared, some of the genetics have passed down, and uh, he starts to kill, and it goes from there. And I would call it son of psycho. <laughs> son of psycho, I like that. Thrasher. So I, I, I want to go to a, a similar place where it, where it's uh, it's Norman's son uh, as a teenager. And, and like like with yours, um, you know, Norman and his wife have decided to conceal Norman's past from the kid. And the kid does start to discover hints of the past, especially since, you know, everybody in town knows about the murders, since they're obviously not living too far from where, where it took place. And instead, this movie is all going to be about the son's paranoia. The son knows that his parents, and some, and in some cases, whole parts of the town are hiding something from him. And it's all about his mental state spiraling downward as he tries to, with incorrect information, piece together what this big secret is. Uh, and, you know, him him discovering the family's history with, with serial killing is what ends up pushing him over the edge. And that's the real sin of the sin of the characters in the movie. Because Norman and his wife weren't honest with their child from the beginning, this secret eventually leads the child to become so paranoid and disturbed that he ends up killing his parents. And the cycle just kind of begins anew. There we go. And what would it be called? Uh it would be called uh, oh, what the what the hell? I'll give it a terrible title. It would be called Psychogenesis. <laughs> okay. It would be that whole trend where we don't put numbers anymore. <laughs> we just that's yes, true. Put a that's colon true. and then a, a vague word. Yep. And uh, Alex. All right. So after uh, burning down the uh, old house and everything, um, the police show up and they're like, you know what, Norman? You know, it's uh, you committed arson. Um, you violated your parole, um, and also the uh, you confessed to a murder that we had never charged with you before, so you're yeah. very much going back to jail. Um, so he's back to jail, and with all the civil suits from the previous victims that were, were still affected by um, you know, his uh, legacy of murder, um, they decide to give him the, the death penalty. So... Um, so he's uh, rigged up to the electric chair, and as they rig him up, he's got a lock of his mother's hair in his hand. So, um, oh, and the executioner is going to be Mr. Toomey, just for laughs, so he can be like, hey, I'm going to pull the switch on you, you psycho. Um, and so he pulls the switch, and then what happens is that the electricity uh, is so intense it fuses with the uh, hair DNA uh, left in left in his hand. <laughs> And he becomes Mother God, and he can mm. fly around and shoot rays of, uh, of of braids of hair out of his eyes, and and make people explode, and um, be, and uh, reigns in an era of terror as a um, as a as a uh, floating lightning bolt shooting uh, Norma Bates God. So it's and a whole talk. shocker thing. 
Yes, exactly. A, a ridiculous X-Men shocker. Um, gonzo, who knows what shit movie. And what would you call it? Uh, Psycho 5 Dial M for Mother. Very good. So now we're going to move on to uh, what you're watching. I got to watch um, uh, an older movie I hadn't seen in a while since I was a kid, and it's always strange going back to visit them, but this one was still pretty good, even if the special effects didn't work quite as well as I uh, thought so as a kid. Uh, I'm talking about Death Becomes Her mm. with Goldie Hawn um, and Bruce Willis. And, uh, it, you know, it's by Robert Zemeckis. He did this after the Back to the Future movies. The big gimmick is uh, that the women get killed and then they you have, like, the head on backwards or all this sort of thing. Oh, there's some and, wonderful, um, like, body horror comedy as, as their bodies yes, get broken yeah. and <laughs> it, it is That's weird seeing Bruce Willis with the hair piece and a mustache, but that was done on purpose to make mm-hmm. him look different from Die Hard. Well, it, and kind it, of a callback back, to his comedy roots. Yeah, it goes back to his comedy roots and back when he was a professional stage actor. I, I, love, I love it when directors remember that he can do that. Yeah, yeah back when Willis um, was still trying. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Exactly, and and it's neat to see it. I I still think the ending is is a bit cheesy, but but what can you expect? And and Goldie Hawn hasn't acted in much in a long time, so to kind of see her in her role, especially in the beginning when she's in a fat suit with a <laughs> different hair, it's almost unrecognizable. Um, and Meryl Streep, of course, is, is in this, and uh, I think is they both Isabella like... Rossellini in it. Is isn't she the woman who has the elixir yeah. of immortality? Yeah, very young uh, Mussolini with well-placed um, necklaces. <laughs> so does she goes, yeah, not necklaces, whatever. Uh, Egyptian accoutrement, but yeah, it's. So I, I think it's good. It's. Um, I wouldn't say it's scary. I think you know if you can handle uh, Adam's family, you could handle this. It's. Uh, I guess kids would call it spoopy. <laughs> yeah, it's the, a lot. Of- I thought it was a lot of fun, yeah. So, uh, yeah, oh, oh, so, uh, anecdote. So, when I was in middle school, uh, in science class, we, we, I guess we were learning about radiation and x-rays in particular, and there was a, a, another girl in my class had, like, she brought up this movie. She didn't remember what it was, but I knew what she was talking about, because she mentioned Meryl Streep, and the movie had just aired on television at the time. And she was like, but they could literally see through her. And I knew the scene they were talking about where, like, Meryl Streep has, like, the borehole cut through her. And I remember trying to explain how the special effect was done because I had seen how it was done on one of those behind-the-scenes shows mm-hmm. and never being able to get the the answer out because anytime I tried to answer it, I would either be talking over the teacher or I'd get all these other questions from students who didn't know what uh, what audio animatronics were. So was the teacher, she let you talk? She didn't try to shut you down well, and he, continue he, with well, the actual he, class? It, it was a he. He was mm-hmm. a retired military submarine engineer. And eventually he, he got, it's not that he got tired of me trying to talk. He got tired of the whole class trying to talk. <laughs> right. And it was okay. a weird, it was a weird side thing to be trying to explain a special effect in the middle of a a non-digital special effect in the middle of this class where we're learning about x-rays. 
Definitely. All right. So, uh, number, or what am I talking about? Alex, what have you been watching? Number Alex. Number Number Alex. Alex. That's what they call me. Um, Let's see. Uh, See, I've been watching a lot of stuff, as usual, but most recently watched um, Karen Kusama's Jennifer's Body. Have y'all seen this? Y'all heard of this? I've heard of it. I, I'd seen it, but it was when it first came out on DVD. I remember getting it in the mail from uh, Netflix. Oh, it's written by that? Diablo Cody, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had seen it once before, and um, second time around, I loved it uh, all the much more. It's it's a really funny, really twisted uh, kind of revisionist horror film. Um, and uh, Karen Kusama and, um, and uh, Diablo Cody, I think, just make a wonderful film together. But it's really the cast, the the premise basically is, is that um, Amanda Seyfried and Megan Fox are like best friends in high school. Amanda Seyfried's like the quote frumpy, nerdy friend, and Megan Fox is obviously like the babe, um, which is funny because they try to make Amanda Seyfried like kind of like dumpy looking and it's impossible because she's very beautiful. Um, and then, you know, Megan Fox's character is basically kidnapped by these asshole bandmates and murdered in like a ritualistic satanic way because they need to sacrifice a virgin. But surprise, she's not a virgin. Um, so she becomes a demon who, you know, sustains herself on the blood of many of on the of you know, of of precocious young men, and it's a it's a hilarious and twisted uh, film that I think tilts a lot of the genre conventions on its head and spins it from a female perspective, and what you get is a is a fascinating and, and really entertaining horror film. Right, it's um. You know, Megan Fox at the time was doing like the Transformer movies where she wasn't called on to do a lot. It was kind of basically, you know, looking sexy and the leaning over cars and things. And this had kind of proved she had more to offer. And since then, you know, she's done um, a lot of comedies and, and things like that. It's, uh, I guess, what bugged me at the time is like you get these big reveals about kind of revealing more what happened uh, over the end credits or all kind oh, of yeah, jammed together. With the band, and I kind of wish that was kind of put in the plot a bit more. I don't know. I was kind of annoyed they saved these big whoppers uh, yeah. for the end credits. I thought it was, you know what it reminded me of, is that when she gets picked up, and it's a great cameo from Lance Henriksen, and she's like, oh, I'm following the band around. And it reminded me at the end of Silence of the Lambs, of like, you know, having an old friend for dinner. You know, she's like, it's going to be their last show. And I'm like, yes. So it, that, it's like played like found footage. I thought that I liked how that worked. Um, and I think the screenplay, it's got a lot going on, too. Um, well, and they the, really uh, get gory with the effects, too. I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they um, I think it's I think it's a lot of fun. The And the, just how douchey the bandmates are. Uh, is it Low Shoulder, I think, is the name of the group. <laughs> and yeah. they are just the worst, like. You know, they're like, there's so many indie bands, and, like, we're all so damn cute, and it's really hard to make it. Like, if you're not on Letterman, like, you're done, you know? Right, right. Um, Well, cool. Yeah, I know that movie's gotten sort of a a better uh, rep recently than it did at the time of the release. I I recall it not doing especially well, but you've, um, I've seen, you know, there's a lot of fan art online for it. There's a a lot of re-releases of it. So, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, was this a shout factory thing, or? I'm not sure, actually. Um, Sounds probably. like it would be, but or scream factory, excuse me. Um, so, all right, cool. So, we're gonna 
do the sequel scene. What did you find for us, Thrasher? Because well, there's not a lot of... Uh... Oh, sorry. I, I, I you... can't. I yep. can keep it short because it may be something we want to talk about as its own episode. I uh, but I saw Scoob. Oh, oh, sure. The the cartoon on HBO. Uh, yeah. The feature, I mean. Which, it, it, so which what did you think? Okay, so it's not a good Scooby-Doo movie, but it is a pretty good Blue Falcon movie. I don't even know what Blue Falcon is. Yeah, he is. He is one of the more obscure Hanna Barbera characters. He's not. He's not as well known as Space Ghost. But admittedly, I think the only reason people know Space Ghost today is because of Space Ghost Coast to Coast, running from the '90s through the 2000s. Uh, but yeah, he he's sort of a Batman. He's sort of a Batman type gadget-based superhero who has a comical sidekick, Dynoma the Dog Wonder, who's a cybernetic talking dog loaded with gadgets. I know much sounds vaguely more familiar. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, does it work? Is it more, you mentioned it's not a good Scooby-Doo movie. Does that mean there's not like a murder mystery or, or a mystery of some kind at the heart of it? Or Oh, no, there, there, there is. And in fact, we do get to see the Scooby gang solve a traditional Scooby-Doo murder in the, in the first act. Of, uh, Scooby-Doo, not murder, Scooby-Doo mystery in the first act, uh, in, in, the, in the film's first act. So, so, that's, so that's pretty good. It's just that the Blue Falcon stuff. So here's the deal. This whole movie feels like the Avengers of Hanna-Barbera <laughs> movies. Like, this this feels like it's three to five movies down the line because so many established Warner Brothers, or not Warner Brothers, uh, Hanna-Barbera characters show up. But instead, it's the first movie. It has the whole B- Batman v Superman problem. You're doing the big crossover early rather than building to it. <laughs> and, I th- and I think that's what holds the movie back. I mean... If you could separate the Scooby-Doo stuff and develop the Scooby-Doo stuff, you'd have a decent Scooby movie. But likewise, if you separated the Blue Falcon stuff and developed that, you would have a great Blue Falcon movie, not just a good one. I see. Interesting. But but I'd say one thing that I like, I, I, I am a huge fan of, of Hanna-Barbera like, and Hanna-Barbera adjacent animation. Even the crap I find a lot to like. And believe me, there is a <laughs> lot of crap when you dig into that. <laughs> into into uh, Hanna Barbera animation, but this movie, uh, which was let me see, it was directed by uh, Tony Servone, uh, uh, who has a long history in animation. This movie was clearly made by people who share my love of Hanna Barbera, because there are in the background and in dialogue there are constant references to not only other Hanna Barbera cartoons, but the people who make them. This the movie is always name-dropping Hanna-Barbera animators, directors, writers, voice actors, and and, and, and in a totally organic way. Like, they don't wink to the audience and make a big deal about it. It's just peppered in dialogue. Oh, yeah, they have to go to Messick Mountain. Don Messick being the original voice actor for Scooby-Doo. Like, I I love that little touch. So, like, the love is clear in this film, and and that, at least for me, is what made it watchable. How is the Shaggy in there? Okay, so it's Will Forte from SNL as Shaggy. He he does a good job, but and and this is kind of a problem throughout the film is that most of the voices sound like someone on SNL doing an impression for a sketch. Um, uh-huh. So while his voice works as Shaggy Rogers, uh, it it's it would be better it would be better in a Scooby Doo parody than in an actual Scooby Doo movie. Of course, Frank Welker is back as Scooby Doo. He does a great job. Um, 
I, I, I don't know. Like I do, I do sort, of, I do sort of wish they had stuck with a bit more of the traditional Scooby Doo voice cast. I think it would have helped. Although Jason Isaacs does a really good Dick Dastardly, and something mm. else the movie did that I really liked is that Dick Dastardly does have a big evil scheme, but his big evil scheme is only half evil. And I, I, I love the spin that they put on it. Very good. Are there any Johnny Quest references? Uh, yes. When, so right. uh, uh, the, the whole thing with Messick Mountain is under Messick Mountain, they find this, uh, or, or no, not only, but under this glacier, they find this preserved prehistoric world. And when they fly into the preserved prehistoric world, a group of pterodactyls fly up to their the huh. Blue Falcon's jet. And it's in 3D, but it's just like the scene in the opening credits of Johnny Quest when the purple pterodactyls fly by and start screeching. Oh, cool. Uh, that's and, awesome. th- and that's the other weird thing is clearly they were banking on making like a Hanna-Barbera interconnected universe because over the credits it shows all these characters interacting with other Hanna-Barbera characters, including the mystery gang going to Dr. Quest's compound and like him giving them, outfitting them with gadgets and upgrade, upgrading the mystery machine. Oh, and actually a fun, a fun detail. Um, the laptop that Velma uses is a quest brand laptop. No way. That has cool. the Johnny Quest Q on the back where the Apple logo would normally be. Ah, cool. Oh, and if I if I could just shout it out as a big as a as a uh, super fan of both Captain Caveman and Tracy Morgan, Tracy Morgan is amazing as Captain Caveman, and I wish he was awesome. in more of the film. Or better yet, just make a Captain Caveman film starring Tracy Morgan. That would be great. Nice. Does he sound like the old voice, or he does his own thing? In his normal, when he speaks, he sort of sounds like Tracy Morgan after a pack of cigarettes. He's a little bit gruffer, but it's still Tracy Morgan. But when he does the Captain Caveman yell, it's clearly Tracy Morgan doing it, but it sounds just like Mel Blanc doing the yell. That's great. I recall liking the Captain Caveman segments of, I believe, a pup named Scooby-Doo. Uh, actually, I think you're thinking of the Flintstone kids. Oh, yeah, sure. That sounds about right. That makes more sense. Um, That's so weird. In the continuity of the Flintstones, Captain Caveman has both been a TV show that the Flintstones watch and an actual superhero that the Flintstones have interacted with. Very strange indeed. So, on to the sequel scene. This is, uh, part of the radio show where the, there's a doctor who has written some books that was actually involved, I think, off-screen in what happened in the first film. Yeah, well, yeah, they, they state that he was the he was the doctor that sort of interviewed Norman after the murders and, and initially handled his treatment before he was transferred to the facility where he stayed. Um, and it's strange that he didn't recognize his voice sooner. Like, he has to do math before he can figure out they're talking to Norman, Norman Bates. Yeah, and Norman Bates goes by the name Ed as a reference to Ed Gein, the the killer who inspired Psycho to begin with. Um, All right, who wants to play which part? Uh, I've already done Norman, so I won't do Norman. I can do uh, Norman. Okay, what part do you want the record? I'll do... uh, I I tend to dominate these things, so I'll just do Fran. (laughs) Okay, I'll do Dr. Leo. Um... So let's uh, let's go. 
this abuse your mother heaped on you, you didn't mind it so long as it was just the two of you? Isn't that what you're trying to say? As bad as, as, bad as it was, it was okay. Perhaps even enjoyable. Until she brought home a boyfriend? Could it be there was a little jealous there, If the doctors try to turn this into some kind of an incest tragedy, tell them to forget it, Fran. Forget it, Doc! I mean, if it was that kind of thing, I wouldn't have killed all those other women, would I? Uh, how many did you kill? Do you remember? Okay. I, I feel like we, I feel like we somehow all agreed to be a different Muppet, but we couldn't settle on what <laughs> Muppet we were trying to be. I could see that. It was a bit Muppety quality to the performance. Um, so next time, we're going to wrap up this psycho voyage that uh, has been a bit longer than expected due to various delays weather and otherwise we are going to do psycho the remake from is it 98 or 99 it's from the late 90s 98. right 98 uh, directed yeah. by um gus van sant it's i'm not even sure why it exists so it'll be interesting to talk Ooh. about <laughs> you got to see it too right thrasher oh yes yes i do yeah yeah okay great um so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. I have a new book out called Podcast You Nerd. You can find that on Amazon. I am in the middle of editing the audiobook uh, slowly but surely. Um, Thrasher. Uh, so you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, I quite possibly by the time this episode has dropped, I will I will have a new book out. Uh, it's 100 Oddities for a Dungeon. That's dungeon as in a place where you lock people up to forget about them as opposed to a place full of monsters uh, and dragons and treasure and whatnot. Uh, this is part of the 100 Oddities series that I've been, that I've been co-authoring and uh, illustrating uh, for, for quite a while now. Uh, this particular book is is very important to me because my longtime collaborator on these books, Clint Staples, he passed away last year. And this, I believe, is the last of the books in the series he contributed to. So it's been it's getting this book out has been an emotional journey, but I cannot wait uh, to uh, actually see it in, in print uh, and in PDF form. You'll, you can find it, or when it's out, you will be able to find it in PDF form on drivethroughrpg.com. Uh, you can also find it in, or will be able to find it in the Skirmisher Publishing online store. So just search for Skirmisher Publishing LLC. It'll, it'll turn up. So yeah, 100 Oddities for a Dungeon. Do you know if he has unpublished stuff? Um, I... Actually, I think so. I, I know. Uh, so w one of the things, one of the things he uh, he had uh, put out was uh, was uh, Ragnarok: The Age of Wolves, which was a Norse mythology themed uh, skirmish level uh, war game. And I know there were future books planned for that. So uh, presumably, presumably, he does have unpublished material uh, in that in, for for Ragnarok: Age of Wolves. Uh, and there was going to be a full-on tabletop RPG. I don't know if that was finished or not. Well, I guess I'll have to check with our publisher, Mike, uh, to find out, because it would be worth getting that out. Yeah, interesting. Um, Alex? Uh, you can find me on the Twitter at CrabNebula1914. And like you guys, I've joined the world of uh, published uh, film critics, um, amongst many other great uh, writers who are contributors for Battleship Pretension. It's the uh, Battleship Pretension book, uh, The 101 Best Films of the Decade. 
Uh, you can buy pick up a copy um, on the website. I believe it's like fourteen ninety nine. It's uh, worth every penny. I got a copy right next to me, and um, it's got some other great writers, namely the website's founders, um, David Bax and uh, Tyler Smith, and editor at large Scott Nye, and a whole mess of other uh, talented contribute uh, contributors. So uh, definitely check that out. Very cool. Um, all right, neat. So um, next time, of course, we're doing the Psycho remake from '98. And oh, this is weird. Uh, a bit oh. of trivia about that. Quentin Tarantino says he prefers Van Sant's remake to the original, saying the remake was more real. That's insane. Of, I, um, of course he does. It, it's more <laughs> filmic. I think that's what he means. He yes. Yeah. Real well, also, is. He likes. He likes you know Richard Gere's Breathless more than John Godard's, and he likes sure, I think, sure, like sure. the Gun Crazy remake. Yeah. yeah. All right. So. Um, for uh, sequel cast two, this is Matt, and this is Thrasher, and this is Alex. Saying the bees had stung him in his ears, in his eyes, even in his mouth. Psycho killer, qu'est-ce que c'est?